Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at the U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about the Spring Fertilizer Outlook. We have three panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a Nutrient Management Specialist um, and Extension Specialist at the University of Minnesota located out of the St. Paul campus. Uh, Brad Carlson, Extension Educator, work out of the regional office in Mankato, but work statewide, uh, part of our water resources group, uh, but uh, I'm a soil scientist. Uh, Jeff Vetch, I'm a researcher at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. I do soil fertility research primarily in the southern half of the state. Last year was an extremely dry year in many parts of Minnesota. Will that have repercussions on how fertilizer is managed this year? Well, if you take a look at the data uh, from the, the uh, soil moisture data out of the Lamberton Research Station, I know I was shared a, a graph uh, from our state climatology office on that, and it showed a moisture deficit of nearly five inches of water. Uh, and so if we think about that, uh, that's an awful lot of precipitation that's necessary before we reach field capacity. We often talk about the loss processes of nitrogen being water-based and and uh, typically we don't carry nitrogen over from one year to the next. But uh, but when the soil's dry, actually there is that potential because we, we don't necessarily reach the uh, point of saturation. And if you look at the historical data on nitrogen uh, nitrate levels in the rivers in the Minnesota and the Mississippi River, you'll see that those numbers spike uh, pretty much every year following a drought year. And so it does kind of give us some background uh, info that that does, that indeed does happen. And so kind of looking at it from a a producer's perspective, if we've got a buildup of of nitrate in the soil, uh, whether that's uh, just nitrogen nitrate that that came from mineralized organic matter through natural sources that uh, in a lot of years is lost but uh, is not lost because it's been dry or unused fertilizer for corn on corn uh, there is the possibility of taking a soil test and measuring for that um, the last couple of years uh, Minnesota Valley testing labs has been generous enough to share their testing information with us and and for for the f- the people who submit the fall uh, soil samples. And what we found this last year in the fall of 2022 is that nearly 80% of the samples that were submitted did have a credit. In fact, the uh, there was about a fourth of them that had uh, nearly a full rate, 155 pounds nitrogen plus. Uh, it's worth noting that that's not a random sample. Uh, that was folks submitting soil samples who suspected that they might have a credit. Uh, but that being said, uh, if you're in a circumstance, particularly if you've got corn on corn where you might have unused fertilizer, or if you have a long-term manure history, a situation that's prone to mineralize a lot more nitrogen than than what you normally would expect, uh, there is a likelihood you're going to be able to find that. Now, the the real caveat to all of that is, can we actually get a soil test taken this spring in a timely enough fashion to be able to make a management decision? And that's, I think, really where the question is. We know that we had a lot of snowfall. In fact, I think I saw something, I think uh, Dennis Toddy or somebody put something out that our drought is, uh, by technical definitions, is over because of the amount of water uh, received in the snowfall. And we know that with the soils as dry as they were, last fall that there wasn't hardly any frost in the soil and so as the snow has been melting here 
Uh, we've not been seeing a lot of runoff. Uh, it does uh, look like a lot of it's getting into the soil. I know where I live in Waseca County, my sump pump has been going off for a couple of weeks. Uh, and so definitely something's going on there. Um, and so, you know, I guess the question is, is, is what parts of the state are going to reach soil saturation? And if so, for how long is that going to have implications on nitrogen loss? It doesn't seem like there probably would be that significant, although we still have yet to see how much rainfall we get when it finally warms up. So that is a possibility. But the other aspect here, of course, is, is we're closing in on April now. And uh, so is it going to get dry enough to take a soil test? And then when you get the results back, do you have enough time to uh, to make a management decision with that? And so I think we, we, don't, we don't really know that yet. Uh, uh, the one thing I guess I would remind producers is, uh, particularly for your corn-following soybeans, um, that's pretty forgiving as far as when you do a fertilizer application, if the soil conditions uh, get to be right for planting, I'd worry about planting and uh, come back with uh, with the nitrogen application afterwards. You know, we got a lot of capacity to put on urea over the top with a spin spreader uh, after planting is done. Uh, that's not as big of an issue. And so from that aspect, if you haven't put your fertilizer on, you probably still are able to do a soil test if you're able to uh, get that number uh, and, and make an adjustment downward, um, in particularly in the situations where you think it might uh, it might be warranted. Yeah, and we'll we'll kind of see what the spring brings because I mean I don't know. Do we have any idea from any of the stations where we're at in terms of saturation? Because I think that'll be one of the major questions, at least with leaching potential. You know, where we if we do start getting some rainfall, you know, if we're at a point near saturation, once all the snow goes, you know, what that overall risk is going to be like in terms of leaching losses. So that kind of time will tell with that. Um, you know, as far as the, the pre-plant nitrate test, one of the things that, you know, I've been looking at is what data that we have out there right now, kind of showing what kind of confidence we have in that test. Because with a lot of these nitrate tests, one of the issues that we have is that a lot of them are what we call more qualitative tests. So they'll tell us kind of a break point at which we're too low or too, or we have enough or we're too low. But the the calibration side to tell you how much to apply beyond that is, is kind of where these things fall apart. And with the pre-plant test, it's one of the things we're looking at right now is what information we have in there, because we are right now recommending credits um, just based on how our nitrogen uh, our recommendations are built that growers can use based on those tests. And I have seen some circumstances where we have seen, you know, as Brad was talking, some some of this data that's come back from these labs being really sufficiently high. And some of our, our data does show that, you know, looking at some sites where we get really high numbers that we've we've seen no nitrogen response at those particular locations. So what it really boils down to, I think now for us, um, you know, since we kind of are seeing these issues pop back again uh, with these higher carried over residual nitrates, where there were a few years where, where they're really low. We had more questions actually about adding more in just because of the values coming back lower that, you know, what confidence do we have in this data and in what we can use? So that's the thing it, it really looking to me right now with kind of where these dry conditions coming in is um, especially nitrate because P and K really aren't going to be as much of an issue, I don't think. I mean, there might be some lower potassium values just because of the residue recycling being poor. I don't think that's going to be an issue, though, this year you're taking samples and a lot of those are taking fall anyway. So, you know, it's, I think it's a good time now for us on the research side to start looking at these things because with the scrutiny there is right now in ag, particularly with nitrates in the water, we need to know what options we have. We get to years like this that we can go in and, and look at giving growers some um, you know potential options, maybe for cutting back in some areas that may be carrying some residual or some significant residual nitrate. 
You know, we uh, have the National Observer Network, and at the Research and Outreach Centers, we're also, uh, you know, NOA weather or National Weather Service weather stations, and we monitor the spring amount of precip that's in the snowpack. And here at Waseca, we've had anywhere from two inches back in late December, or um, I'm sorry, in late January, uh, to as much as three and a half. But you know, I would think statewide, we're kind of in that two inch to four and a half inch uh, amounts of precip in the snowpack. Now, obviously, we've lost a lot of snowpack and a lot of that is gone and our numbers are much lower today. How much of that gets in the soil? The experts don't always agree, but it, it can be very little or it can be a significant amount. As Brad said, we don't have a lot of frost this year, but there's always enough to prevent infiltration and you see runoff. And I see lots of surface water uh, ponding in some places, and I see a lot of drainage ditches that are full. There's probably some tiles that are flowing because they've got surface tile inlets, but I don't think there's a lot of tile flow through the perimeter through the profile yet in most fields. Um, so we'll have to, it's really going to come down to the next week or two to see how much of this water from the snowpack made it into the soil and how much of it did run off. I think in these areas that, like Brad said, had five, six inch deficits in their profile. Unless we see a lot of rain in the end of March, which really isn't in the forecast or in early April, some of these fields are probably still have a deficit and what that or how that uh, reacts to nitrogen is maybe it'll move some of that nitrate down a little bit in the profile, but not out of the profile. Yeah, and it's cold enough right now, too, that denitrification shouldn't be an issue. Uh, so that's one of the things to to kind of consider with that. Even if we are saturated, that won't be as much of an issue. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll look and see what happens because I'm kind of hoping we've got a little bit better spring than we had last year, that we're not compressing everything into the, the back end of uh, May for some of these areas to get the, the crops in the ground. But, but that, you know, it's been the challenge with this residual nitrate was we're seeing more of those higher numbers is really what do those mean. And it's one of the things that I'm, really afraid of if we start seeing some um, higher flow coming out, what we're going to see in some of the numbers coming out of the Minnesota River for the nitrate values, because um, I have a feeling they'll be a little bit higher if we're carrying over more residual nitrate. So that's kind of the thing that um, it just, you know, it'd be nice to have something out there, at least taking some of the nitrate up if there is some residual. But, um, you know, we know that that really isn't going to happen until we start getting into June and July when that, that corn crop is growing, it'll start sucking most of that nitrate out of the profile that's there. So I guess just a reminder to everybody that that test is only testing nitrate. And so I know if, if for instance, you're thinking about maybe putting on a half rate of fertilizer and then coming back and supplementing with side dress, uh, or if you're just simply wanting to, um, you know, want, wanting to try and predict uh, what's out there, uh, if you had a long-term manure history, uh, or I should say if you had a recent manure application, it's, it's not necessarily going to find that because uh, if you, for instance, if you put on some urea, um, it's going to be very difficult to know exactly what form the nitrogen is in. If you put on manure last fall and you want to figure out what's out there, uh, it's not going to test that either. Uh, and so I know I threw out this concept about, uh, you know, maybe you could get planting done and then worry about your nitrogen. You certainly can do that, uh, but be careful if you uh, end up doing some kind of a fertilizer application and then take a soil test, uh, interpretation of those numbers could be very difficult. That moves into the territory that we would call a pre-side dress nitrate test instead of a pre-plant test. And uh, that's been very hard for us to interpret. I know, Dan, you've been looking at that a little bit lately. Yeah, and we're looking at that more in comparison with the pre-plant just to see. I mean, as Brad said, if you look at fertilizer applications, since the majority of the fertilizer we're applying are going straight to ammonium, 
that, I mean, yes, technically it could pick it up, but there's really no way to quantify that in terms of what that means for the amount of N. I mean, it's always based on nitrate. If you look at the majority of these tests, even that pre-side risk nitrate test. So that's one of the things to kind of consider. If you do put some on, it's it's best to let that convert. Um, so that pre-side dress or maybe that PSNT, that one foot sample might be a better option if you've got some fertilizer already applied. I mean, we're looking at it now. I mean, one of the questions we have with the, the pre-plant nitrate test, it's always been more recommended as a fall test in the western part of Minnesota. Now, there are some options that we have in our recommendations for south central, southeastern Minnesota more as a spring test. And I've looked at the fall spring comparison because we do know they do change. I mean, the thing about the comparisons that we have with the limited data we have is that about half the time it was higher in the spring and half the time it was lower in the spring. So there isn't any consistency in terms of that pre-plant nitrate test, um, if it's going to be higher or lower. And the sites where I said where it worked really well is a site that it tested, it was about 23 part per million, which we'd give a credit of um, close to 180 pounds an, and that site had no response to nitrogen. And it was high in the fall, it was high in the spring. Uh, so it's one of the things I'm looking at right now, whether or not, particularly for South Central and Southeast, is uh, whether or not the option might be to, to look at flagging some of those, those spots in the fields that might be extremely high that you may want to take another look at. Because I think certainly... You know, if you have that option, you know, prioritizing planting and coming back with a side dress application, if there's a lot of residual nitrate there, we know the plant isn't going to take a whole lot up until starting maybe uh, mid-June or so that um, it doesn't need a whole lot out there. So, you know, following up a pre-plant with a pre-side dress might be a viable option, um, you know, if you can do at least a pre-plant before the fertilizers, the initial fertilizers applied, um, or just to get to the screening of the areas, maybe some field areas that you might have higher residual nitrates. So... We're working on the pre-side risk right now. It's, again, one of those tests where if you're, you know, 25, 26 part per million or above, you probably have enough nitrogen to get you through the season. Uh, if you're below that, then, again, it's a question of how much to apply. Um, but we wish we had some better options out there. I mean, some of the aerial imaging really, to me, hasn't been consistent enough where I would want to use it at all my acres because most of the time you have to apply such a low rate and you have to sense later um, where you get to kind of that danger point of uh, applying the nitrogen season too late where it might not get into the plant. So I said nitrogen's been a tough one to, to crack because it seemingly should be simple, but with the mobile the mobile nature of that uh, nitrate in the profile, the, some of these tests just haven't been completely bulletproof in terms of figuring out what, what a grower should be doing based on some of the numbers they're getting back from the lab. If we are looking at a late spring, what considerations should growers be making regarding fertilizer? You know, I think it comes down to keying on prioritizing what field operations they think are the most important. And that's going to be a little different for each grower, obviously, based on their labor availability, their equipment availability, and the amount of acres that they farm. You know, if you're in southern, central, or southeastern Minnesota, and you're going to put on spring nitrogen, and if you're going to do it, or if the retailer is going to do it, um, if the retailer is going to do it, it doesn't really matter what source. Whenever you get around to work in those fields and planting them, if it's a pre-plant application of urea, obviously you don't want to leave that lay on the soil surface too long. Um, as Dad or as Brad mentioned earlier, if it's a corn after soybean field and you feel that you know I, I don't want to wait any longer, I want to go ahead and plant that field. Maybe it's to mid-May, but I haven't got my retailer there yet to apply. There's no reason that you can't go ahead and plant those fields without a spring end application. As far as P and K goes, I think generally most of that's been applied. The other major factor for most of these growers is manure. And you get these later springs, especially if it's wet in the spring, 
which obviously we had a dry fall, but we had a lot of we had a lot of snow. We had some rain. How what's the rest of the the next month going to bring us? Is it going to be a wet? It sounds like that's going to continue based on short term trends. Um, that manure spring manure application can be a challenge, and and that's something that has to be done because you got pits that are full. You can't leave it. You can't leave it for later, and you really have no options or very few limited options for putting it on after planting. So what what I see happen often is we set aside some acres and those are the last ones we're going to put manure on and maybe we go back and plant our other acres first and do everything else before we get to those acres that the manure is going to go on. And during that time, maybe we try to get that manure on and plant those acres last, whether that's the best solution and how that, uh, whether those fields are going to, are going to be, um, are going to perform well. It all depends upon uh, the time that it takes and how late it is to plant. You know, one thing that Tom Hoverstead here is my office mate says that, uh, you know, the last few years or actually several years, some of this mid to later planted corn is still done very well. And I think the panic that we used to have it, we can't get all our corn in by the first week of May. I don't see that as big of a yield potential penalty as it once was. So that's something to consider too. Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed last year, Jeff, too. I mean, even with some of our late planted beans, how well they did. I was kind of surprised. Um, we had some fields that went in around Memorial Day. And they still did fairly well. So, you know, with fertilizer application, we'll see. I have really no read on how much went down last fall. I mean, normally, you know, the last you look at, I think, um, not maybe the fall of 21, we saw a lot of particularly nitrogen go down because there was a lot of concern about supply and availability going into spring. I mean, we look at now, I just pulled up. Some of the DTN numbers, and this was only through March 3rd, we're, we're recording this the end of March, um, you know, seeing some significant downward trends in a lot of the fertilizer markets, too, to see kind of, it'd be inter- so it'd be interesting to see if some growers kind of pull the trigger on putting some fertilizer down that may have been holding off, and then it'll mainly affect the P and K, I think, more than than anything, because I think your nitrogen decisions have probably been, you know, pretty well made. Uh, one of the questions we do get from time to time is on inferral starter, um, particularly that always comes from earlier plantings, but also later plantings, whether or not there's a significant advantage from delayed plantings to try to get the crop out of the ground quicker. And, you know, we really don't see that as much. Uh, we had some studies that's been probably, I think, 10 years ago, but I think it's still pretty, you know, a- applicable, applicable if you look at it. We were looking at different relative maturities at three different planting dates, looking at late April, kind of, you know, remember around that May, that May 10 time frame, and then late May, uh, closer Memorial Day, and really didn't see any advantage from earlier late plantings from that starter application. And really starter, when it comes down to it, it's a lot of cosmetic growth anyway, unless you're maybe in the western part of the state, you're dealing with, or south central dealing with high pH issues that, you know, most time, if you've gotten a broadcast on that, that inferral is probably not going to give you an advantage either. So, I'm sure that will come up a little bit, um, you know, with some growers, if we do get compressed here a little bit for spring about not wanting to deal with some of these things like starter, but, um, you know, we'll see. And it's, it said, it's interesting looking at these fertilizer prices drop. I mean, they're still going to remain strong with the commodity prices way they're at. I mean, that's just kind of the way it is. The, the marketing, a lot of these products, you know, tends to maintain around a certain price ratio to the commodity prices, but um, seeing them come down at least a little bit is, is kind of nice, you know, particularly looking at potash and um you know map and dat maybe not coming down quite as much but potash being one of those so we'll see what happens like i said we're kind of on that early stage we'll see what happens here in april when um some of the new uh, reports come out to see where things are at and see kind of how that affects some of the growers decisions yeah dan uh you know i think the one thing that 
is trending downward, which is a good trend, and it, it may continue is the uh, nitrogen price. And it, when you look at the future prices uh, and the uh, trading of natural gas, it's kind of at its lowest uh, market level that it's been in a couple of years. So that's a probably isn't going to impact this year's fertilizer prices, but it hopefully will impact next year's fertilizer prices if that continues uh, throughout the rest of the spring and summer. I would think the manufacturing might start to crank up again if the prices stay in those uh, at those levels. You know, the one the one wild card in a lot of this was just simply how dry it really was last fall and how much wear and tear there was on application equipment. I know there's parts of the state where application rigs were brought back out of the field just because they were breaking shanks and knives so badly. And I think, you know, then then obviously the retailers were looking at wanting to move that application to the spring. And now that it's it's looking like it's going to be a little late of a spring, um, I, I don't I guess we just don't really know how that's going to play out as far as uh, whether they're going to still want to stick with that anhydrous or if they're willing to just sit on that. It's, you know, unfortunately, if they're sitting on a lot of product and the prices are falling, they're going to end up losing money on it. Uh, uh, so so I'm not quite sure about that, uh, you know, but. Then we've got, you know, the whole area of the state in the southeast corner where we don't do fall application anyway. And and so that's going to pretty much be business as usual. Um, I, I guess really, you know, in, in the end, you're just going to need to have some conversations with your retailer about uh, how they're going to handle this. If, if you were thought you were going to get fall nitrogen on and you didn't, uh, what's this looking like for the spring? I mean, are they going to hold you to that? Uh, that anhydrous uh, uh, commitment, and you're just going to have to sit around and wait for that to, to get on, or or are they willing to move off of that and move into some other things? Uh, there's going to be there's probably going to be some real regional differences in that. Is there any new research on fertilizer products like uh, biologicals or inhibitors that Minnesota growers should be aware of? So this is going to be one of the things that's going to come up again this spring are these biologicals just because of the marketing being pretty strong on a lot of these products. And, you know, I didn't look at anything last year. Uh, most of the research we had was funding was cut. But, you know, if you're looking at a lot of comparison trials, um, you know, particularly just looking at your standard rate minus maybe a certain amount with a biological. I mean, these last couple of years have been years that it's you're less likely going to see any difference in those yield. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of that residual nitrate carryover. It doesn't prove that the products work. I mean, it's one of the things that I've been really, you know, focusing with a lot of the people I've been talking to on this. If you're doing um, some of these comparisons, if you're cutting your rate back and putting a product on, don't just compare it to your standard rate. Make sure you have that cut rate without the product, just so you know that the product actually works. Because I mean, looking at the product, since a lot of them now are are priced based on the price of nitrogen and you see they may be just a certain percentage of what the current market price is is what they're going for it's still a pretty significant cost so looking at it i mean looking at a lot of our data i have not seen anything in any of these products that shows that they're a clear winner right now and you know in the lab the the mode of action what they're supposed to do they probably do work but once you get things to the field um all bets are off and you know, looking at all the data we've had with uh, many of these, uh, you know, dating back even, you know, 10 years or so, we've been looking at some of these these fertilizer enhancers. There just isn't anything clearly out there that we'd be recommending because I would be recommending if it does work. But um, so that's one of the things I think there's still some caution there, um, you know, depending on where your nitrogen rates are at. If you're kind of close to that optimal end rate for a given field, cutting back could see some significant issues. But if we 
are carrying residual nitrate, I think that can kind of um, buffer some of that issue. It doesn't necessarily mean that the products work, um, but I think we're going to kind of see more and more of that right now within the next few years. What's going to happen with some of these markets? Because there's been a lot of testing out there. You know, talk to a lot of consultants over the winter that have been doing testing. And if they're not seeing a whole lot in terms of benefit, I think you're going to start to see some of this farmer interest maybe uh, wane a little bit uh, from some of the fervor that there was early on. But um, there's certainly a lot of a lot of products out there. So that's the main thing I have. I mean, in terms of inhibitors right now, Jeff, I know, has done more work on that. But really going into spring, it's not probably anything I'd be as concerned about Unless we start getting into maybe some later applications, you may want to consider uh, some product with NBPT in it. Um, like that's essentially the generic of what's in Agritane. If you're doing any surface applications of urea, uh, particularly as we go later into June, if it starts to get warmer, we get more humidity um, around in in the air. That's where I'd be more concerned about it. But um, in terms of new products out there, there's there's not really anything new that I know coming into this year. Yeah, Dan, yeah. when it comes to nitrification inhibitors and spring application, I, I just, we rarely see any return on investment to those very consistently. So with spring applications, probably not going down that nitrification inhibitor path very far. But yeah, the urease inhibitors are important if you're going to start putting this urea on the surface. If you, if you get in a situation where you plant some fields and then broadcast fertilizer on top, then that uh, that's probably something that you do need and will give you a return on investment. So Jeff, do you see any actual clear benefit from any of these urease inhibitors with UAN? I know you've done some work. I mean, I've normally kind of told most growers if they're banding, it's probably less of an impact. But, you know, some of your data may have shown maybe some little bit of an impact, but I've just never really been high on those. It's mainly been with dry urea where I've I've kind of made my focus for growers for recommendations. Yeah, it's a good question, Dan. So we've, we've had some studies where we've looked at higher rates of UAN applied, kind of like a full end rate or full side dress rate, not a smaller amount. And in those circumstances, occasionally the UAN or the urease inhibitors would provide a benefit. But if growers are putting a little bit of UAN in, in as a carrier for pre-emerge herbicides, or if they're side dressing a smaller amount in a surface band or with Y drops, the urease inhibitor benefit there, I just think is fairly negligible when you're talking about a lower uh, rate to begin with. But also, you know, when you're talking about products that are applied or the, the urease products being a, a certain amount per ton, you're not going to spend that much either if your nitrogen rate is lower. So, you know, there's kind of pros and cons there, but I would generally agree that if you're, um, if you're worried about urea volatilization with uh, UAN, it's probably not as big of an issue as it is with it, as it is with urea. I think one of the things you need to be thinking about with UAN is broadcasting it across the surface and just getting immobilization concerns, especially if you've got high residue environments and you're putting it in a broadcast application. That's where I've seen it, it perform poorly more often than not. So I, I guess I'd like to go back a little bit about the biologicals because there's something uh, related to that stuff uh, from, from some of our past experience dealing with precision agriculture technology that I think is really relevant. Uh, and that is to, to critically think about what you're trying to accomplish with these products. And so, for instance, when we looked at some of the precision ag uh, stuff, uh, the variable rate nitrogen, for instance, 
what we discovered is in a, in a lot of cases we were already maximizing yield and so really the only profit that was to be had was by reducing inputs and so if you look at the way a lot of these biologicals are advertised it's actually very similar they're talking about reducing your fertilizer inputs so i think farmers have to realize these products probably aren't going to increase their yields they're they're meant to to do some other perform some other function whether that be you know, potentially breaking down residue or or it's just re in some way it's replacing your fertilizer inputs. Uh, so you do have to kind of realize that that the profit on a per acre basis is just going to be related to those reduced inputs. It's not going to be because of bushels in the in the grain bin in the fall. And so it does potentially limit the, um, you know, what you're going to get from these products. And so I think philosophically producers, when they, if they want to make an investment in these products, if they decide that they work or that they want to try them, have to also be realizing that that's about the only way they're going to actually make uh, make money off of these things is is somehow it's going to impact their total crop budgets um but but probably not yields you know the the other angle on this also coming from the uh some of my work with precision ag one of the newsletters that i get an email newsletter discussed some of the nitrogen advisory tools that were very popular five six years ago a lot of these products have left the market and the the person that writes this newsletter wrote an editorial about that suggesting that the and the, the level of farmer adoption wasn't enough the profit wasn't enough um and therefore while some of these products we kind of felt they actually kind of worked because in a lot of cases they were telling us apply less and and when we were evaluating and we were not seeing a yield difference and so it, it seemed like maybe they're making accurate recommendations yet yet the uh you know the 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 tools disappeared anyway and the person that wrote this newsletter suggested that there was a kind of a, a shelf life or a turnaround time on investment on this stuff where if you get to seven to ten years after these things have been developed and they're still not turning a profit that that some of the just the basics in the financial world on this kind of stuff is that they're just going to cut bait and run away and so i tend to wonder where we're at with the biological stuff because of the investment in it and how long they've been looking at these things and so you know i don't know the answer if the industry's got the staying power to stick with it until they get these things figured out to where they work and and they're reliable or if we're going to get a few more years down the road and they're just going to say uh, didn't never took off we're done you know and walk away from them uh, but uh, I, I do know that I'll, I won't throw anybody under the bus but uh, I, I, I did talk to somebody in industry who said that they had some messages from corporate that that uh, some of their investments had better start returning or or uh, they were just going to pull the plug on some of this stuff and so I guess we do need to kind of look with a bit of a wary eye on some of these products um, you know whether they're actually are are doing what they say or whether somebody's saying you know well we do have a product let's just see see if we can sell some of it and get some of our money back are there any last words from the group oh i just i guess i just uh wrap up by saying uh, and something i've been reminding uh, farmers of lately is that uh, you know we're available to answer questions uh, uh, we've all got different roles I would say that probably uh, Jeff probably has the least amount of time to be sitting by his phone answering farmer calls but from my perspective with the stuff I do uh, I have a lot of time to be able to do that because my schedule is fairly flexible. Uh, so, you know, don't feel like you're out there in a vacuum. If there's things you want to bounce off of us, uh, you know, you're, you're 
we're willing to to take those calls or emails um you know if we can't answer them we'll we'll try and be honest about that um and if you just want our two cents you know we'll, i'm always willing to do that too all right that about does it for this episode of the nutrient management podcast we'd like to thank the agricultural fertilizer research and education council or afrec for supporting the podcast thanks for listening 